Last week, uh, we jumped in to verse, uh, chapter 3 and 4. Uh, specifically, we were talking about the second crossing. Um, you remember the first crossing? Egypt. They were coming out and they crossed over the Red Sea. And they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And there's a whole new generation that are going through another crossing. Why so significant? Why these two crossings? Um, I, I, I broke it down last week just to pave the road. And I told you we'd come back this week to mention this. There's so much significance in this picture. When you think about Egypt... It's a place of darkness. They were under bondage. They were slaves. They had the rulers, uh, taskmasters that were ruling over them. If it seemed like they were successful, then they came in harder. They made it more difficult. And it's a picture of the life of an unbeliever. That you don't realize that you are under the bondage of the enemy. That you have no hope of being set free. But God began to work this crazy uh, plan of, of salvation for them. And they come to the edge of the Red Sea. God did everything to bring them to that point. And they're standing at the Red Sea. And they're looking. It's a place of deliverance. But the, the enemy is pursuing them. Satan chasing after them. Not willing to let them go. Pharaoh chasing. Not willing to let them go. They come to the edge of the Red Sea and they're looking at what I believe is a picture of the wrath of God. They're looking at this body of water that has no hope. They have no hope of getting victory that way. And the enemy, they're just bound to die one way or another. And then God performs an un unbelievable miracle. I think we, because we know the story, we just think, yeah, he parted the Red Sea. He was their only hope. It's such a powerful picture of salvation that it was all of God. God was their only hope. And the very water that they were entirely spared from, so much so that there wasn't a sandal that crossed that water that came out wet. That picture of the wrath of God, that a believer who trusts in God is completely, um, completely separated from the wrath of God. But that same wrath, what did it do after they crossed over came crashing down on their enemy. And it was at that moment that they were set free. Um, you think uh, they start wandering in the wilderness. They've been set free from the enemy. They walked in unbelief. They grumbled. But they're still set free from their enemy. So God still led them. He still fed them. He sustained them. He protected them. They were sustained by God. But, but yet there was something more in life. There was something that God promised. God never told them, I'm giving you the wilderness. He didn't intend for them to stay in the wilderness. This journey could have taken 10 or 11 days, but it took 40 years because of unbelief. Because they weren't laying hold of what God had promised them. They walked in unbelief instead. And so this, this uh, wilderness, they come to the edge now of the Jordan River. We talked last week, is a picture of death. The Jordan River represents this moment of death. Who died right before the Jordan River? Moses. Moses, representative of the law. And, and Joshua, 
Ironically, the captain of our salvation is this picture of, of Jesus leading us in to victorious life. And so this moment of death, Galatians says it this way, for through the law, I died to the law. The law is dead so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's in that water of the Jordan. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And man, it's so rich. All of Galatians 2 and 3 leads to chapter 3. It said, are you foolish? Having begun, are, you, you began by the Spirit of God. You were reborn by the Spirit of God. Are you now being perfected by the flesh? That whole picture, what do we tell people? Now that you're born again, now act like a Christian. Right? All right, read your Bible. Do what the Bible says. Act like a Christian. That, that is not how you are perfected. You are perfected by the Spirit. You lay hold of all that God has promised you by his Spirit, not by me getting it done. So that's the picture of this place, this crossing of the Jordan River. And, uh, and we come into this place of dependence, the promised land. Uh, let me encourage you with this. I, I think uh, many years of my life, I've just always assumed that that's heaven, right? We hear you cross the stormy waters of the Jordan, and that's a picture of dying. And, and the, the promised land is this picture of heaven. But if you look at the story, it's not the finish line. It's the starting line, right? You look at the picture, there's death. There's suffering, there's defeat still. They're, they have victories, but if that's your picture of heaven, there's not a lot to look forward to. It's the picture of a Christian life, a victorious Christian life, where you're depending and walking by faith uh, day by day. And so, uh, so much appreciated. You think about the, is that heaven? I mean, they're taking victories, but we're going to find out next week it didn't last long uh, in AI, all right? But we talked about trusting in the promise last week, uh, that you can look at a zip line and it takes a lot of faith to trust. But listen, it's quite the adventure if you do trust, right? It takes a lot of faith, but if you do, Wiersbe said this, said unbelief says, let's go back to where it's safe. I don't know, on the platform, before you jump off on a zip line, let's go ahead and go back down to ground level and hug the ground. Right? But faith said, let's go forward to where God is working. And so they trusted in the promise. They testified of the provision. And this is a powerful picture. By the way, I took a, I took, <laughs> last week we had so much content and it was so hard to go like this even for this week. But the idea of 12 stones could be uh, a sermon series on itself. 12 stones. Why in the world? Remember the picture. They took stones out of the Jordan and placed it in the promised land in Gilgal, right? And Joshua, before they left, he took stones that were in the promised land and set them in the Jordan before the waters rushed over it. Why in the world would 12 stones, one is to commemorate what God has done, but why the 12 stones in the water? It's a picture of exchange, 
so crazy. The, the victory that Jesus has won, he's given to us, and he's becoming our sin for us. I, I love Schofield said it this way. The memorials mark the distinction between Christ's death under judgment in the believer's place, the rushing water, and the believer's perfect deliverance from judgment. And so we ended last week, the only thing that pleases God It's not your self-effort of trying to live out the Christian life. It's faith. Faith, believing, trusting in the promises of God. That is the only thing that pleases God. Hebrews 11, 6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so we turn now uh, to following the same level, same thought, it's perfect lead-in. Chapter 5 and 6, if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, I'll have the, the, the scripture on the screen, but you can check me as we follow through this. Um, faith is the victory. So we're going to look at today. Faith is the victory. All right? Uh, we're, we're in an ancient spiritual battle. We're all battling in this thing that, that's between between this fallen, this angel, Lucifer, and the Son of God, God himself, and they're battling throughout all of human history, and we're in that battle right now. But until we recognize that the battle has been won by Jesus already, he's given us the victory. We just have to lay hold of it by faith. It changes how you fight you're not fighting for victory. You're fighting, fighting from victory in Christ. And so I, I've spent many years, by the way, I'm throwing this up here. This is temptation at its finest. If you ever go on a diet, food looks so much better when you're on a diet. Right? And so what we do with our temptation is we, we try to put guardrails up so that we can get the victory. I read self-help books that can strengthen me to get the victory. And I, I look at all these, I put accountability partners, and, and that's a tough word because you can lie to your accountability partner. So unless you're not, unless you're bowing before Christ and you're accountable to Christ and account, human accountability partner, you can lie to them. And so all these things that are guardrails, internet filters, and all these things, they can be bypassed if your appetite for that thing is stronger than the conviction and accountability of Christ. And so we find ourselves just, uh, we're trying to take away our appetite for that. We're trying to set that aside. Help me not to grab a cookie, Right? You might be married. Help me not to do this. You've got a person there as an accountability. Help me not to eat this stuff. Help me not to do this. The reality is, in Christ, this promise, listen to this, 1 John 5, 4. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. What is it? It's our faith. Our faith in what Christ has done. He's done it. And we trust him and we walk in that victory. Truth is, Jesus is the only one that can defeat sin. I can't. And the victory in the battle is all of him. 
He's the only hope that I have. And the crazy thing, I've noticed this in my life. I was a thief as a kid. Up until teenage years, I was a thief. And God changed my heart. He changed my appetite. I don't have a a heart to get from people and steal. I have a heart to give, and that's not me. So the thing about Jesus is when you walk by faith, he changes your appetite. He He doesn't just put guardrails around this and make it go on the top shelf where you can't reach it. He changes your appetite. And that's the hope that's in Jesus. And so we look at at Joshua chapter 5, this preparation for battle. And this is, uh, I was reminded of it. I think I'd heard it years ago. And as I was studying, it was like so powerful to me, this picture. Uh, How do you you train for battle? If you're going to go fight a war, what do you do? Well, I mean, you probably run a little bit, get your stamina up, right? Maybe lift weights, maybe do a little CrossFit, um, just things that can build your strength so that when you're in a battle, you can overcome your enemy. Uh, I love, don't, don't, uh, Gladiator's a little bit gory, but there's a movie called Gladiator and, uh, and it's a pretty powerful movie in that movie. Remember before he goes into the ring, they have these gladiator schools where they're training them how to use all different kinds of weapons. They go in the the Colosseum and there's your weapons, whatever you got is what you have to defend yourself against these things. So there's training. And I, I knew a couple Navy SEALs, by the way, happy Independence Day, day after. Also, by the way, Wayne County, it sounds like the Revolutionary War in Wayne County. I was studying till late last night and it was like, it's exactly what you'd imagine the Revolutionary War, like bangs and pops and it's like there was a lot of guns in there. I know the difference between a gun and uh, so there's a lot of America happened yesterday in Wayne County. But I knew a couple Navy SEALs. uh, They go through the craziest training process for battle. If I'm going to war, I want a couple of my buddies who are Navy SEALs. Like, they've been through some stuff before they ever reach a battlefield. And so that idea, what it, how do they prepare for battle? The nation of Israel, two million people going against a fortified city that's up on a hill that they could just shoot them down as they're climbing this hill. It just seems crazy. How would you defend? How would you prepare? Joshua 5.1 says... As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, they heard the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan. News got around quick. God dried up the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted. And there was no longer any spirit in them to fight because of what God had done for the people of Israel. They were scared to death of Israel. Kind of sounds like God's already given them victory before they ever step on the battlefield. And so verse two, at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make, I'm not gonna dwell on this very long, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. 
It's a new generation. All the ones that had been circumcised in Egypt and they crossed over, this generation had never been circumcised. And I'll let the adults look that up if you don't know what that is. All right? And so they were circumcised. Verse 4 says, And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the same day, or on the way, after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness, after they had come out of Egypt, had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until the nation, until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, had perished. Because they did not obey the voice of the Lord, and the Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children, whom he raised up in the place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And listen to this. When the circumcising of the whole nation... Over a million men circumcised. They remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. That is a terrible plan of, of preparation. If an enemy came, if an enemy came, they'd overtake them immediately. All their warriors were decapitated. Like they, they were done. They couldn't finish the work. They were useless. And so they had to ex completely trust in God. They had just crossed over in enemy territory. God told them to be circumcised. They were realigning, trusting in the covenant that was, that was made with with Abraham, they cut away the flesh. Deuteronomy said this, Paul, or, or Moses said, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your, uh, that you may live. Sorry, my brain read something else. It's a physical picture of a spiritual reality. The cutting away of the flesh gives you a heart to, to obey. That's the worst possible time for surgery. You just crossed over, and the, the enemy knows you're there. Wouldn't you want to be strengthening yourself rather than making yourself weak? And they remained in their places. They had to trust God. It's just a radical act of obedience. And so the power in battle, I love this picture. And by the way, you need to read through this. I, I'm leaving so much meat on the bone that if we had Sunday night service, we could have a couple Sunday night services unpacking even stuff that's between what I just shared in verse 13. But there's paddle, power in the battle. In verse 13, when Joshua was by Jericho, he's standing there thinking, how in the world are we going to beat this fortified city? I know God is going to give the victory, but how much do I have to figure this out? I'm just trying to figure this out. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. He was ready to fight. 
So Joshua went up to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? This is a multiple choice question and there's two answers. Are you for us or are you against us? I, love, I have shared this a number of times. It's been uh, written in a number of my notebooks, just as a reminder. Uh, Tony Evans always said this, uh, God did not come to take sides. He came to take over. God does not come to take your side. He's not on our side. The question is, are you on his side? He's here to take over. We'll get to Republican and Democrat in a minute. He's not here to take a side. He's here to take over. He said this, no. In other words, not for you, not against you, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. I'm here to take over. Joshua was asking the, the wrong person the question. He should have been asking, am I for you or am I against you? He should be asking himself. And Joshua fell to his face and, uh, to the earth and worshiped him and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? The commander of an entire country, over two million people, face down before the commander of the army of the Lord. You know, I imagine Joshua laying, looking at the earth face down before he's acknowledging this is not my battle. The commander has come to take over. I imagine he knows that the victory is never going to, it's not going to come from me. It's going to come from God. And, and even his own life is not his own. It's God's. I'm your servant. Verse 15 said, And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. Joshua did so. By the way, there's not an angel in the heavens that would merit the worship of man. I'm going to say that again. There's not an angel in heaven that merits the worship of man. This is a picture of Jesus. The pre-incarnate Jesus, before he was in Bethlehem, this is him. And he comes to take over. That's why he's taking his shoes off. He's, he is recognizing that this is Messiah. Watchman Nee uh, is a, a man that I've read a lot after. Um, if you've never heard of him, look him up and read after him. Uh, he says, we must be brought to a place where naturally gifted though we may be, we dare not speak except in conscious and continual dependence on him. You may be talented. You may be equipped as a, as a warrior in the spiritual battle, but this is all of his battle. Paul said this way, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war against, uh, according to the flesh. 
but the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power. That's our only hope is divine power to destroy strongholds. He also said in Colossians, he said, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus, by what he did on the cross. That's where our victory lies. And we know this, we're more than conquerors through him. We're less than a failure without him. I'm going to throw that as a tag point in that verse. Don't quote me on it because I didn't change scripture. But we're failures without him. Um, as, I, uh, as I think about this wandering in the wilderness, that's been the story of my life for a number of years in my Christian life that I was not laying hold and I still feel like I cycle back. I know you can't go back, but... Just a place of defeat, murmuring and complaining and not trusting in the promises of God. But when you don't trust him, you will walk in defeat. Is your life victorious? Are you walking with Christ? Or are you walking in defeat? And so the plan in the battle... The Lord is going to... And we're going to fire through this, but this is where it gets good. My kids know this story... Uh, if you have kids in here, you know this story. Jericho, they're coming. Here's the game plan, guys. Here's a hint. It's not going to have anything to do with you. You're just going to obey me. That's how you get the victory. All right? Uh, <laughs> Andrew Murray on prayer, he, he just humility and prayer. He said, faith expects from God what is beyond all expectation. You're expecting that God can accomplish what is beyond expectation. And so as you look in the, our country, I told you I'd come here. You look at our country and there's so much division. Uh, I, I don't remember a time over the last 38 years that I have mourned over the 4th of July just thinking about the condition of our country, that, that it's the media's goal to divide um, and it's affecting the church. Um, we draw lines based on how we vote and we throw stones across the aisle at people that vote other way, but we, we forget what we have in common in Christ. And so the division, wherever you stand, there's discord. Um, and, and specifically here now, we mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Obviously, I hope that every believer in this room would acknowledge not the stance, but the statement. I, I, don't, I don't stand for, there's a, this is a political agenda. I hope you understand. It's way more than a statement but I hope that every person in this room can acknowledge that this statement is true. That every black man, every black woman matters. It's not a disclaimer. Just a statement alone. Can, you can say that. I, I don't hold to the stance, but the statement. The same with this. I hope that every person can acknowledge, no matter where they came from, no matter their accent, no matter if they're a Yankee or a Southerner, I don't know what I am. I grew up in New York and uh, spent the last 11 years in Georgia, and so I don't know where I belong. So I ended up in West Virginia, right in the middle. <laughs> but there's, 
There's a, there's a goal right now happening in America. We're going to start a social movement and we're going to end racism once and for all. And so we'll, we'll, we'll go on parades. We'll try to change laws. We're going to try to do whatever we can to end racism. You can take down a thousand statues. Whether you're for it or against it, I'm not speaking on that. But it will not end racism until there's a spiritual awakening. It is an issue in the heart of man, and it is not something that can be reformed socially. When a person, when Jesus gets a hold of the heart of a man, you look at Paul, and it's not in my notes. Paul was a, what? He was an apostle to the Gentiles. He was in fellowship with Jews and Gentiles in the local church, the same people he's throwing in prison. He was against them. But when Jesus changes your heart, you see man differently. He laid down his life, was beaten and martyred for the, not martyred, but he was beaten for the sake of the body of Christ. When God changes your heart, he changes your heart towards people. I want every man and every woman to know Jesus because he has the power to take a set of captive free. And so what is it that's going to change our nation? Is it social reform? What if the plan that Christ has set for this world, that our only hope as a nation is if the church just humbles themselves. The church confesses not these sin, my sin before a holy God. What if we pray? What if we as individuals seek his face? What if we personally repent? What if God has chosen the preservation of an entire nation because his people are walking in submission to him? That's how change is affected. But no, 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 no. It hasn't affected yet, right? It just seems illogical and impossible. The plan that God has for victory seems ridiculous. There's got to be a better way because this way is probably not happening. But listen, as Joshua was entering the land, he comes to the first place and the battle plan that's set before them. Joshua 6.1 says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because the people of Israel, none went out, none came in. They were, they were locked down. They were scared to death. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given, past tense, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. It's a future event described as if it's already happened. Great definition of faith, by the way. Hebrews 11.1 1 says the same thing. As if you have it in your hand, even though it's hoped for. It's as good as, as done. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do once a day for six days. 
You gather everybody, let's walk around the city one time and go home. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets is made of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city will, will fall flat down. And the people shall go up, everyone straightway, climbing over the rubble to take over the city. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And the people said to the, and, and he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city and let the armed men pass on before the Ark. In verse 10, but Joshua commanded the people, be quiet. You're just on a walk following the Lord. Be quiet. You shall not shout or make your voice heard. Neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout, then shout, for, shout the battle cry. Verse 14, on the second day they marched around the city, the, the city once, and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. <laughs> what a ridiculous battle plan. It's, how are you going to get the victory from walking around a city? So they stand there day after day. You think about the reproach. Imagine what every Jew is thinking. You're opening yourself up to the threat. I, Somebody could shoot an arrow and you're dead. You're just walking around the city. It, it's all, they're opening themselves up to a reproach. What kind of battle plan is that? You, you consider yourself a warrior that's fought through many wars and you're ready to go and then you come to the edge and God tells you to just walk around the city. That's embarrassing. Imagine what the people of Jericho were thinking. They're sitting there. Some of them are mocking them. Like, I believe, though, I believe the heart of the people, they're scared to death. Every day they see them marching and they're thinking, are they going to destroy us today? They know that God has given that city. Well, I want to remind you of another person. You can't see it on here. There's a red cord hanging out of a window. You imagine Rahab sitting in her house, in her room on the wall, looking out and seeing, that's my victory. I, I was thinking this on my own, just didn't read it anywhere, didn't look. It's just a thought of a, a sporadic person that sits and thinks about, daydreams about the word. Why didn't God just get Rahab to come out of the city and just go with them? Could, it didn't have to be this dramatic because Rahab could have gone out. We're going on a walk. We're, we'll be outside the city. And they never come back. And that's how they're saved. Right? Why couldn't they have just left the city and joined the nation of Israel and victory? God was showing them his magnificent glory and power. God was saving her and her family. And she followed orders. Wouldn't you, if God was going to bring you the victory and you're standing in your, your apartment knowing that this city is going to be ruined, 
Wouldn't you in your mind think, I think I'm going to go downstairs, go out of the city, I'll sneak out at night and join the, the nation that I'm going to... That's not what she was asked to do. She was asked to stand still and wait on the salvation of the Lord. That's such a powerful picture. Joshua 16, this is how it went down. The same day, or the seventh day, they rose early at dawn of day and marched around the city the same manner seven times. And it was only on that day they marched around the city seven times. And on the seventh time when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you this city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Every day, I, I, I think too of the nation of Israel looking up at seeing that red cord every day. And so the promise in battle, uh, this is such a beautiful thing. As I'm thinking about it, you think about a battle. There's always casualties. There's, there's a cost in every battle. You come back from war and you mark how many casualties do we have today? You go to war the next day, mark the next day how many casualties. How many casualties in the nation of Israel when they walk by faith? Zero. It doesn't say that anybody died. That's, that's for the Jews. So think about the Gentiles. How many Gentiles who were walking by faith died in Jericho? Zero. In a battle between two people, two, two people groups, it was a war. God provided victory to every person on both sides of the battle who were walking by faith. The promise within the battle, verse 20 says, so the people shouted, the trumpets were blown, and as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout. The wall fell down flat so that the people went up in the city, every man straightway before, and it captured the city. But the two men had spied out the land. Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out there the woman and all. Every one of them. Not one is sacrificed. Not one is a casualty. All who belong to her, as you swore. So the young men who had been spies went in, brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her, and they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze. That, there's a whole lot there. I've got to truck through, but uh, anyway, bronze and of iron, and they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belong to her, Joshua saved alive. And listen, she has lived in Israel to this day. When this book was written, to this day, because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy, because she walked by faith. That is so powerful, isn't it? This story is so encouraging. Because in the battle... It's Christ. It's all of his. And so what does that mean to me in 2020? 
What does that mean? How can I take encouragement from this? Specifically, how can I lay hold of the victory that's in Christ? If he's promised me victory and that I, I lay hold of victory by faith, by trusting and walking in what he's promised, then how? Because God has promised that you will be conformed to the image of Jesus. I want to lay hold of what he's promised. I was wrestling, I spent quite a while wrestling through, like, if I was to help somebody in 2020, how do you lay hold of victory? And uh, just the most basic verse that maybe is a good idea to underline and come back to pretty regularly, uh, says, walk it by the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit, by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. Have you gratified the desires of your flesh this week? There's two people that might know that you've gratified the desires of your flesh. You and God. Nobody else knows it. So I'm asking you, have you gratified the desires of your flesh this week? So that if, if that is so, then you've not walked in the Spirit. It's crazy. Walking in the Spirit, you will not be defeated. You'll have victory. You'll walk victoriously. That the only way that I can lay hold and, and not gratify the desires of my flesh, that the power that I have to not do that is walk in dependence. In dependence, not independence. In dependence of Christ. The Holy Spirit that indwells us. Ironically, listen, uh, if you know Galatians 5, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Ironically, in the promised land, there's a lot of fruit. I, I just saw this connection. I don't know if it's a, a real thing. I haven't spent a lot of time here, but listen, fruit of the Spirit. All right, I want you to read this carefully. All right? I want you to count how many fruit are on here, all right? But the fruit of the Spirit is... Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. All right. How many, how many fruit are there? How many fruit? There's, this is singular. That these nine aspects are what is added to a person that's walking in the Spirit. The fruit is the demonstration of his life in you. That is so exciting because let me tell you the story of my life. When I said I'm wandering in the wilderness, I go, I'm working at a church camp in, in Indiana and I've got a bunch of tough kids and so every week that I had a tough group, I'd come into the counselor's meeting and I'd say, man, I'm really working on being patient. I want to I have patience. And so I'm going to put all these things in my life to try to be patient with these kids. I, I want to put all these things in my life to love people. And so this week, I'm really working on love. This week, I'm really working on patience. You might be going through a tough time. This week, I'm trying to walk in joy, to count it joy. I'm really working on that this week and really working on having peace in the middle of the storm. 
And so the way that we approach this is we're trying to, we're trying to harvest these fruit off the tree, not understanding that the fruit is the production of Jesus in you. It's by the fruit of the Spirit of God that we see these things at work in our life. So the answer is, and I'm going to work on doing these things, the answer is walk in the Spirit. Lay hold of all that God has promised to us when we walk in dependence with him. That so deeply convicts me even now. And so your takeaway today, if you're a takeaway kind of person, um, takeaway is spiritual victory can never be earned by what I do. Right? Nation of Israel didn't leave that battle saying, yeah, we beat Jericho. Right? That's an absurd statement. If you left, that is just a conceited, absurd statement. If you left Jericho and said, man, we got that victory. But it is only by trusting in what Jesus has done. That's how you get victory. Faith is the victory.